Because the tides are rising, so must we rise to this moment, rise to this day, rise to this life, this place in the web that is yours and ours, rise because the earth remains our only home and we, fellow travelers, its only hope for healing, wholeness, salvation, rise before the mystery, before the big bang that started it all, that this infinite universe still still takes notice of us, still feels the in and out of our breath, still holds us, connects us, rise or surrender with gratitude for this beauty, this chance to be part of it all, to give back, to weave life, past, present, future, everywhere, always, as one. Come, let us worship together. We invite anyone still seated who is a child in age or in spirit to come up front to join Margaret and our young chalice lighters for a story. Good morning. Now it's a really good morning. <laughs> so my story today is called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon, and it's by Jack Kent. And I want you guys to think while I'm telling it, if there, oh, you've got a dragon. We have, we have a dragon in the house. Okay, we have a dragon in the house. I would like you all to think, is there anything that you have ever ignored, tried not to see, or put aside? It may not be a dragon for you. It might be something different. But while I tell the story, I'd like you to think about that. And when we get downstairs, we'll talk more about that idea. So here it is. There's no such thing as a dragon. Billy Bixby was rather surprised when he woke up one morning and found a dragon in his room. It was a small dragon, just about the size of a kitten, almost could reach in your hand. Well, the dragon wagged its tail happily when Billy patted its head. Billy went downstairs to tell his mother. There's no such thing as a dragon, said Billy's mother, and she said it like she meant it. Billy went back to his room and he began to dress. Well, the dragon came close to Billy and it wagged its tail again, but Billy didn't pat it this time. If there's no such thing as a dragon, it's quite silly to pat it on the head. So Billy washed his face and his hands and he went down to breakfast. The dragon went along. It was bigger now, almost the size of a dog. Well, Billy sat down at the table. The dragon sat down on the table. This sort of thing was not usually permitted in their house, but since Billy's mother knew that there was no such thing about as a dragon, you know, what are you gonna do? You can't tell it to get off the table. So, mother made pancakes for Billy, but the dragon ate them all. Mother made some more, but the dragon ate those too. Mother kept making pancakes until she ran out of batter. Billy only got one of them. Do you see there, he's hiding under the table? Kind of like the dog, hmm. But he said that was all he really wanted anyway. Well, Billy went upstairs to brush his teeth and mother started clearing the table. The dragon, who was quite as big as mother now, made himself comfortable on the hall rug and he went to sleep. By the time Billy came back downstairs, do you guys see what happened? Yeah, this dragon has grown so much, he filled the whole hallway. Billy had to go around by way of the living room to get to where his mother was. I didn't know dragons grew so fast, said Billy. 
There's no such thing as a dragon, said his mother firmly. Right, we are not believing in this. Well, cleaning the downstairs really was a chore. It took all morning with the dragon in the way. Climbing in and out of the windows to get from room to room. Whew, it's really hard to ignore this dragon. By noon, the dragon filled the whole house. It hung its head out that front door, it, its tail came out the back door, and there wasn't even a room in the house that didn't have some part of dragon in it. When the dragon awoke from his nap, well, you know, having grown this much, he was hungry, and a bakery truck went by. The smell of fresh bread was more than the dragon could resist. So up he went, ran down the street following after that bakery truck. The house, of course, went with him just like a snail. <laughs> the mailman was just coming up the path with some mail for the Bixby's when their house rushed past him and headed down the street. That must have been quite a surprise. He chased the Bixby's house for a few blocks, but he couldn't catch it. When Mr. Bixby came home for lunch, the first thing he noticed was that there was no home. Luckily, one of the neighbors went to tell him which way it went. So Mr. Bixby, he got back in his car and he went looking for his house. He studied all the houses as he drove along. Finally, he saw one that did look familiar. Billy and Mrs. Bixby were waving from an upstairs window. Mr. Bixby climbed over the dragon's head onto the porch roof and upstairs through that window. How did this happen? Mr. Bixby asked. It was the dragon, said Billy. There's no such thing, Mother started to say. There is a dragon, Billy insisted, a very big dragon. And Billy patted the dragon on the head. The dragon wagged its tail happily, and then, even faster than it had grown, the dragon started to get smaller. Soon, it was kitten-sized again. I don't mind dragons this size, said Mother. Why did it have to grow so big? I'm not sure, said Billy, but I think it just wanted to get noticed. And there is our now kitten-sized dragon. Thank you. Sit and rest for a minute. Take several deep breaths in and out, calling your attention to this space. Attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to where you are right now. I mean where you are. Where you are and where you are. You are here in this community, in this sanctuary, in this state, in this country, on this beautiful blue planet, whirling through the tailspin of a galaxy. You are unique. You are made of cells and hormones. You are a mix of thought, emotions, values. You are the inheritors of your mother's fathers, and ancestors' dreams. You are part of the human inhabitants of this earth. You are. You exist. You are breathing. You are still. You are connected. You are present. 
You have a holy spark inside of you. You are here now. You are paying attention. Aho, blessed be. My message is that we'll be watching you. <laughs> this is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil and that I refuse to believe. The popular idea of cutting our emissions in half in 10 years only gives us a 50% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees and the risk of setting off irreversible chain reactions beyond human control. 50% may be acceptable to you, but those numbers do not include tipping points, most feedback loops, additional warming hidden by toxic air pollution or the aspects of equity and climate justice. They also rely on my generation sucking hundreds of billions of tons of your CO2 out of the air with technologies that barely exist. So a 50% risk is simply not acceptable to us, we who have to live with the consequences. To have a 67% chance of staying below a 1.5 degrees of global temperature rise, the best odds given by the IPCC, the world had 420 gigatons of CO2 left to emit back on January 1st, 2018. Today that figure is already down to less than 350 gigatons. How dare you pretend that this can be sold with just business as usual and some technical solutions? With today's emissions levels, that remaining CO2 budget will be entirely gone within less than eight and a half years. There will not be any solutions or plans presented in line with these figures here today because these numbers are too uncomfortable and you are still not mature enough to tell it like it is. You are failing us. 
But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say, we will never forgive you. We will not let you get away with this. Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. The world is waking up. And change is coming, whether you like it or not. Thank you. Wouldn't we all like to be able to give a talk like that? <laughs> After the 2016 election, many of us were thrown into a state of shock and despair. We were stunned that this country that we love could elect to move toward exclusionary policies, toward generating fear as a way to manipulate support, and toward accepting half-truths and lies from our leaders. In the months after the election, the number of new members to Unitarian Universalists across the country increased as people came to these congregations seeking hope. Our message was that we would not rest idly to the side while our government undercut our social security system and the well-being of our country, and we offered comfort. I was at seminary during the time and we talked about Julian of Norwich, a 14th century British nun who was remarkable for living through some of the worst times in history. During her life, she spent the time during the Hundred Year War in Britain, and she lived through the Black Plague, which killed over half the population of her country. Yet, she persisted in her belief that she stated over and over, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. If Julian could believe this while thousands were dying around her, then we in seminary could convince ourselves to declare the same hopeful message. I even bought a bracelet that I wore around my wrist and it was engraved with her saying on it. It was a reminder to me when I would look at it to hold on to that comfort and that hope that all would be well. I took that bracelet off a year ago. I removed it because I was worried that it was only part of what I really believe, only part of the message about our future I realize I cannot comfort people with a message that all will be well unless it's also coupled with the message that we must pay attention. We must pay attention to the dragon that we wake up with at the end of our bed in the morning and that eats our pancakes. <laughs> this month, November, our Soul Matters theme is attention. Attention is the act of deliberately directing our mind to a topic or issue it's done by concentrating on one thing, limiting other distracting stimuli in the environment. The issue most imperative for us in this time in history 
is that we must direct our attention to climate change. Too often, we avoid really grappling with this issue because it's so disquieting. I can't imagine any of you are sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, this is great. This is what I wanted to hear Sunday morning. <laughs> it is not a fun topic. We know that there is change in our climate. We know the science. We have seen the glaciers melting and the coastlines eroding away. Hurricanes are more destructive. Wildfires like the ones in California, the ones that have been coming here for the last number of years, have increased in the size and intensity and frequency. But we do not do enough to change the current trends. And why is that? So George Marshall, who's been involved in the environmental movement for over 25 years, has written a book titled, Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. In it, ex explores the factors that contribute to our lack of attention and inaction. One reason has to do with our evolution. As humans, we have evolved to respond to threats to our well-being. We call this our fight or flight response. Because climate change is complex, slow, and seemingly invisible, it does not trigger our threat mechanism. Its insidious nature means we don't respond like we do to more sudden threats in our environment. In addition, climate change isn't caused by an obvious enemy who intends to harm us. Yeah, we try to create an enemy, we try and blame it on a corporation, or a superpower, an abusive country, or big government, but we can't really agree on who is to blame. Without this obvious enemy, we don't know who to respond to. Next, we've developed a fairly comfortable way of life. All of us here, probably. Many of us here live in a house that has a kitchen with a stove a microwave and a refrigerator. Our bedrooms, we usually have a soft mattress and we have running water in our bathrooms. We feel good in our homes. And so it is hard to believe that the environment that we have created is dangerous. So again, our survival mechanisms are not triggered. Not only are we not triggered, but there's a reluctance to respond. We have this innate sense of fairness and we keep track of deaths and favors. Since any solution we come up to climate, for climate change will require us to lose some of what we have, it's hard to convince ourselves to willingly sacrifice our comfortable lifestyle if others are not doing the same. All individuals of all social classes and all countries will have to agree on a distribution of losses and if these losses feel unfair, we will not be able to agree on them. Marshall also points out that we each contribute to climate change. We consume lots of energy with our lifestyles. And so each of us is personally responsible. But at the same time, we have a sense of the powerlessness of individual action. Excuse me. It is hard to convince ourselves to stop the dripping faucet in a bathroom sink if we know that un industries are pouring 
hundreds of gallons of water is down the sink. It's hard to think about turning those lights off in your bedroom when you leave the house, when you look out and you can see office buildings lit up all night long. So we're not convinced that our small acts of conservation will make much difference in the big scheme of things. It is hard. We have a lot of innate expl explanations for why we don't respond. Any call to respond to climate change generates ambivalence and guilt and anxiety. We don't like what is happening to our environment and we are not sure what we can do. Despite this, I know that we each do our part. I know we try. We're buying more fuel-efficient cars. We compost our kitchen scraps and we replace our old light bulbs with the lead lights. And at the same time, we purchase energy-sucking flat-screen TVs and we take cheap airplane rides across the country. Bill McKibben from the organization 350.org says, since all of us are in some way the beneficiaries of cheap fossil fuel, tackling climate change has been like trying to build a movement against yourself it's as if the gay rights movement had to be constructed entirely from evangelicals. <laughs> or if the abolition movement came from slaveholders. The fact is, we're living on precarious ground. Some years ago when I visited Hawaii Volcano National Park, we were allowed to walk out on the volcano lava fields who would have thought that the National Park would actually let us walk out there? The ground consisted of this black, crusty rock and cinders, and it had cracks in these fissures all through it. And often, as I would step over one of the cracks, I would feel some heat rising up, and I'd look down, and between my legs, I could see molten lava flowing right between my straddled legs. This story holds true for the climate crisis. We are standing on precarious ground. We straddle a time in history where we can perhaps make a carefully balanced move back towards safety, but it's not for sure. Perhaps the ground that feels safe can collapse on us. I can't believe in Julian's hopeful view. I can't promise you that all will be well, but I can promise you that unless we pay attention, it will not be well. We cannot afford to rely on hope any longer. We straddle that ground over molten lava between those who say that all shall be well and the voices on the other side that say it's too late. We straddle the gap where on one side are the voices of comfort, perhaps complacency, and on the other are the voices of despair, perhaps cynicism. We straddle the ground of my generation who has fared well with overuse of the planet and the ground of the new generation who are already seeing the path of destruction on our earth. There is a religious response to this. We straddle theological groundings as we respond to the climate crisis. On the one side, we are called to love this world. When we are called to pay attention, it is the reminder to look at where we are, 
to wonder at the miracle we experience just by being on earth each day. But if that is all we do, if we only notice the paradise we are honored to inhabit, we will not truly be a religious people. On the other side is the call to action, to respond to this experience of wonder. But actions that are inspired by guilt or fear will just leave us with anger or despair. Our actions need to be inspired by our faith, our love for this world, and by our love for our children. If we only do the justice work, the call for change, we will not be truly a religious people. Our faith calls us to love the earth and all that is here, and it calls us, it compels us through this love to save it. The role of a congregation of our faith community is to hold us in this balance, this place of loving the world and acting in the world. Each week, we come back together to expand our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Each week, we come here to tell the stories of when we were bold, when we experienced the mystery of life, and when we did an action to save this lovely earth. Finally, and I speak to you here from my experience as a faith-based community organizer, I urge you to find a way to do this as a unified church community. It is not enough to do this work alone as an individual. Any power we have to make a difference comes from the power of numbers, learning to organize, because together we have a louder voice of love and change. So my challenge today to each of you is twofold. First, Let's take a moment each day to stop and pay attention to where we are. Let's remind ourselves that we are stepping on holy ground. Let's each day take time to be grateful, to think about what makes us love this world. And next, let each of us take a vow to do one more thing to save this world together. Let's find ways to organize our church to be part of this moment of precarious balance. The justice work we do is an affirmation of our recognition of what is holy. This work is to heal the world, to resist what destroys and tears us apart. Our spiritual work is to hold us in this place of loving the world so we can become repairers of our planet. Blessed be. Uh -huh.